Okay, Ezra chapter 5. We are in a series called The Rebuilders. And this is the seventh message. That's our key verse from Amos 9. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. So we have done six messages so far. And we started off in Ezra, the, the first four chapters of Ezra. We've covered already. And then we jumped to a little prophetic book by a guy called Haggai, Haggai. And we spent some time there. Really loved that, uh, to be honest. It was, it was rich, two short little chapters, but it's class. And now we're going back to Ezra and we're going to accelerate uh, through the rest of Ezra. Pick up a few things here in chapter five and six before we do like an overview of the rest of the book. Let me read from verse 1 of chapter 5, just up to verse 5 to get us going. Now, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, And Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, I don't know why the screen isn't changing, my screen's changing. At that time, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. And here it is again, the timeline. That's where we are, the red bit there in the middle, 520 B.C., And what we were doing in the previous two messages in this series was looking at the message that Haggai brought to the people in order to get the building project restarted. So we're still sitting in that time period, but we're going to jump forward in a few minutes into a later period. So the work had stopped for 16 years. And it was that prophetic input of Haggai and Zechariah that got it started again. And it's lovely, it says there in verse 2 of Ezra 5, the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Or your Bible might say, helping them. Now, I don't know if the prophets did any building. I'm not sure. But the point is that part of the project was hearing the prophetic word of God. And as I said a few weeks ago, what a prophet normally did, most of the time a prophet did not predict the future. Sometimes they did look into the future, but most of the time they spoke to God's people in their present circumstances and brought a word for God, from God into that. And just like those guys needed the prophets, so do we in the New Testament church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, where he gives over pretty much a whole chapter to prophetic ministry in the New Testament church. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anybody need any of that? (laughs) Strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. 
And just like in the Old Testament, these two guys come along and they strengthen God's people for the work that God has called them to by bringing prophetic ministry. So in the New Testament, Paul says that's to continue. There are to be people in the church who prophetically speak to others. And it is a necessary part of any building project. Zerubbabel could not get this started again. He's the guy that we looked at a couple of weeks ago and he's been in charge for the first six chapters of Ezra. He's the guy in charge. He couldn't get it started again. When the work stopped, he was done. For 16 years, he didn't do anything and he couldn't himself get the people G'd up to get going again. It took the prophetic word to do it. It's the same in the church. For anyone who's ever experienced this, it is powerful. Now, whenever... I was sort of trying to plan preaching in 2020. I had planned in May, June 2020 to do a series on the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the church. And then we went into lockdown and it didn't happen. I've been sitting on it ever since. And I think we will probably do that in the autumn time, September, October. And we'll go into this in, in more detail. But prophetic ministry is a powerful aspect of the New Testament church. And it is woefully absent. (laughs) It's just so rare to encounter it the way it should be encountered. Linda and I first encountered prophetic ministry back in Lisnadil. For any of you that ever been there way back in the day when the church was the other way around. Before it was extended. And there was a guy called Noel McKinney. Has he passed away? Yeah, and we went up to the front of the church for him to pray for us and he put his hand on my back and he started rubbing my back. And I was like, don't do that. (laughs) You know, call me old-fashioned, but I do not want you rubbing my back. But he was rubbing my back at the front of the church, specifically the the very center of my back, and he says, you're going to need backbone for what God's going to call you to. And that was his prophetic word to me. And there's, there was a, a guy who I've mentioned many times who just, just rocked my world a couple of years ago, a South African guy who came here one night when we were just having a night of praise. And what that guy brought to us was so powerful. Prophetic ministry, when it's, when it's done in a biblical manner within the parameters that Paul lays down, it's not vague, it's not generic, it's not just some happy stuff. It is deeply, deeply encouraging, strengthening, and comforting. And sometimes really challenging as well. Like when somebody says to you, you're going to need backbone for what God's going to call you to. That also sort of means you don't have enough backbone just yet. And you better develop some. And there's other moments along the journey where we've been desperate for prophetic input and haven't known where to go or who to go to or who to talk to. This is something that Paul talks about in Corinthians as if it is perfectly normal in the church. And yet it happens very rarely in the modern church. So the question is, Haggai and Zechariah, where are you? Where are the prophets? Where are those who who God has given this gift to? And are you honing it? Are you developing it? Are you soaking it in the scriptures? Are you learning more and more about it? Because the church needs it. If we're going to rebuild, we need prophetic ministry to keep us going. And what happens after that in Ezra 5 is two guys with long, strange names come along. And they ask the rebuilders, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and finish it? 
What are the names of those who are constructing this building? Now, if you're like me, I default, as I read about these guys, I default straight away and I think these are bad guys. Because we've read about opposition before in Ezra and you think to yourself, here we go, more of the same. These guys are coming to cause trouble, but they're not. They're just doing their job. They're local governors, they're local officials, and suddenly after 16 years of nothing happening, these guys start their rebuilding project again. So these local officials come along and say, here, what's going on? And they're, they're neutral. They're not negative. They're not opposed. They're just doing their job and they want to figure out what's happening. And then there's this beautiful phrase. The eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. The eye of their God was watching. I've got my eye on you. <laughs> Sometimes that can be used in a negative context. I've got my eye on you. I'm watching you. I know you're going to fail and I'm watching you so I can catch you do it. That is not what God is saying here. When he is saying that he is watching over them, he is watching over them to protect them. He is watching over them to take joy in them. Just even the other day, we still at home find ourselves sometimes looking out the window and watching the kids playing in the back garden and just taking joy out of watching them. They don't know that. <laughs> but God is like that with us. God's eye is on you. His eye is on you. He sees what you do. Again, please, that is not meant to be negative and threatening. Don't interpret it like that. He sees what you do. He sees who you are. He sees the things that are done in secret. Three times in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, as he teaches about giving and about praying and about fasting, three times he says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Folks, God sees. He's watching you. He sees the times that you just give somebody that extra bit of time. He sees the times when you are more generous than you need to be. He sees the times when you pray. He sees the times when you phone or when you text or when you touch base with someone. He sees all of that stuff. He doesn't miss anything. Sometimes, again, in, in the back garden where, where lots of things happen, um, I will hear a voice, an 11-year-old voice saying, Dad, look at this. And what that means is he's about to take a free kick, isn't it? And, I, and he wants me to watch and take the free kick. And sometimes, you know, I usually watch when I'm asked. But then there are other times that I'll be out in the garden doing something and I'll hear the foot hit the ball and I'll hear the ball hit the net and I'll hear him sort of whip with delight and say, did you see that? And I'm like, no, I didn't. I was pulling out a weed. You know, I was tending to my cabbages, whatever. I didn't see it. God sees everything. You know why sometimes you just, you just want, you sort of want affirmation. I don't think you ever grow out of that. I always enjoyed, even, even up to very recent months, I always enjoyed if, if my own dad saw something that I did and said, oh, you did a good job of that. That's nice. I like that. God never misses anything. His eye is on you. And don't fall into thinking that his eye is on the more important Christians, but not on you. This again, this is where my head sometimes goes to. I, I, I would maybe then think, oh, his eye is on Tim Keller. You know, or his eye is on Rick Warren, but not on me because I'm small and they're big. No, no, no. God doesn't make distinctions like that. His eye is on you today. 
every single one of you. He's watching over you. He's watching over you. As Ezra 5 and 6 go on, then you have some letters, and I'm not going to go into those. You have a letter from these local governors to the king to say, this is what's going on in Jerusalem. Do you approve of it or not? And then you have a letter from the king back to the governors to tell them that he does approve of it. And it's actually quite funny. This is, again, one of those instances where God influences a pagan king who doesn't worship God, who doesn't care for God, but somehow God causes them to be really favorable towards his people. So here's, the, here's part of the letter that is sent back from the king to the local governors. And he tells them in Ezra 6, verse 6, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild the house of God on its site. He says to them, don't interfere. These people are going to build a house for God. You leave them alone. Not only that, he says to them in verse 8 of chapter 6, the expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. So not only are they going to build this place, you're going to give them money to build it as well. And then to make the point really clear, he says in verse 11, I decree that if anyone defies this edict or this command, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. Okay? Now, if you don't know what impaling is, I am not going to actually um, explain it to you, but suffice to say, it hurts. Yeah. See how God influences this man. To support his people, even though he's a pagan. And the work in the temple continues, we read in verse 14 of chapter 6, again that emphasis on how important the preaching of those two prophets was, and they finished building the temple. Now we've been building up to this for weeks. This is Ezra 6, we started Ezra 1, in fact we started back in Amos, and building up and watching how the temple process, the building process started and then stalled and and did nothing for years and then started again. And finally in 6.14 they finish building the temple, class. And it says in 6.16 they dedicated the house of God with joy, but something's wrong. And here you're going to find something out about Ezra and Nehemiah that you may not have known before, that I didn't really sort of understand or fully appreciate before I started to really dive into them, is that over and over again in these books, there's anticlimax. Over and over again, there's disappointment. In Exodus 40, the tabernacle was built. That was the first sort of place that was built for the presence of God to dwell and at the end of Exodus 40 we read that Moses finished the work the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle then the second building that was built for God's presence to dwell in was Solomon's temple and when he finished the temple and dedicated it in 1 Kings 8 we read that when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Tabernacle, finished. The glory of God comes and fills it. Solomon's temple, finished. The glory of God comes and fills it. Zerubbabel's temple 
is finished and dedicated and they are all very very excited about what's about to happen now parents i don't know if you've ever had the experience of telling your kids something was awesome and then because it was awesome to you 20 or 30 years ago and then when they actually see it they look at you as if to say what on earth you know that was not really that impressive at all a film maybe that you you remember watching on bank holidays when you were away oh this is so good let's watch this and they watch it and they think you're an absolute header that was awful i can imagine as zerubbabel's temple is finished the older people in jerusalem saying to the younger ones where do you see what's going to happen now this is going to be incredible because we, we know that when the tabernacle was finished, the glory of God came and filled it. And we know that when the temple was finished, Solomon's first temple, the glory of God came and filled it. And we've just finished this temple. And where do you see, babes, what's going to happen now? And the fireworks are ready and the band are playing. And they're, they're, they're going for this great day of dedicating the new temple. And whenever they actually get there, either you know that one or you don't. Yeah, um, people of a certain age know what happened there. Whenever they actually get there, there's complete disappointment. The music stops. The young kids that were so excited about everything that's going to happen looked at their parents and grandparents and was like, is that it? Because when Zerubbabel finished his temple, the glory of God didn't come. Came to the tabernacle of Moses came to the temple of Solomon and in Ezra 6 you have this massive anticlimax where is the glory God has God promised to return hasn't returned what's going on Zerubbabel worked so hard this guy that we've looked at he worked so hard he did so well I I don't see any mistakes that he made I don't see records of sin from this guy who who led the building project. He's become one of my favorite Old Testament dudes over the last month or so. But his efforts could not bring the glory of God back. And why was that? Well, you'll have to stay tuned for a while longer, I guess, to get it. But that's, that's the pattern that we see at the end of Ezra 6, disappointment. And then we jump forward in time. As we go to Ezra 7, we're actually moving forward about 60 years. So if, you, if you're fond of writing on your Bible, you should write at the end of chapter 6, in between chapter 6 and chapter 7. There's about a 60-year break. What happens in that 60-year break is what takes place in the book of Esther in the Persian kingdom. So when you're reading your Bible, if you want to sort of read vaguely chronologically, read the first six chapters of Ezra, jump to Esther, and then come back and do the rest of Ezra. And what you will see, and and you'll see this as we go along through this series, is that what has happened in Ezra 1 to 6, the cycle of events that happened under Zerubbabel's leadership, that cycle of events is going to happen again in Ezra 7 to 10. And it's going to happen again in Nehemiah 1 to 7, because they are one book. In our Bible, they're two, but they originally were just one book. And you're going to see the same pattern. Zerubbabel was sent up by a pagan king with a group of exiles to go back to Jerusalem. Ezra is sent up by a different pagan king with a group of exiles to go back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel rebuilt the people's identity by re-establishing worship. Ezra is going to rebuild their identity by re-establishing the word of God 
and the teaching of the Torah. Zerubbabel faced challenges from the surrounding people. Ezra is going to face challenges from his own people by some of the things that they do. Zerubbabel saw these mixed results where the temple was finished but God's glory didn't come and there was ultimately anticlimax. Ezra is going to see mixed results where there's a degree of renewal but at the end of Ezra, if you've ever read it, it's horrendous. The people have intermarried with the surrounding nations and they have created a mess that cannot be fixed. They follow the same pattern and the first seven chapters of Nehemiah follow the same pattern as well. And what Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel all discover is that the problem is not the idolatry that the people struggled with before the exile. The problem is, and this is something they can't fix, the problem is the human heart. The human heart. Zerubbabel restores worship. Ezra brings the word. Nehemiah provides a safe place by rebuilding the walls. But none of them can deal with the problem of the human heart. Someone else will have to come and deal with the problem of the human heart. And he will come about 450 years later. And the glory will come to the temple, but not in their time frame. And I don't want to sort of steal my own thunder too much from how I plan this series to end. But let me tell you that going to church and singing songs and reading books and doing all the right stuff will only take a person so far. You need a new heart. Otherwise, your life will be marked by anticlimax. You need a new heart. Zerubbabel restored worship. He facilitated a place for the people to worship. These guys here on a Sunday morning, they facilitate a place for the people to worship. And they can create an environment for worship. But they can't give you a heart to worship. The the change in the heart is not something that the Zerubbabels up here can do. (laughs) And Ezra handles the word, as we're going to see. And Ezra can bring the word and be faithful bringing the word, but he can't transform the heart of his hearers. And Nehemiah can create a safe place for people. He can put the walls up and he can create an environment where people are safe and they're secure. But he can't affect, as we'll see in Nehemiah, how the people treat each other within that. That takes a new heart. So over and over again, we see so many good things in these books. But ultimately... What we see is, and as David knew long before his time, or thinking way ahead of his time, David knew that the only only solution was a new heart, a pure heart. Now we'll come back to this in a few weeks' time, but I really want you to get it. The efforts of good men and women doing their best, focusing God's people on worship and on the word and on a safe place, to be together, all of those efforts can only take us so far. We need new hearts. And the only one who can give a new heart is King Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how the heart is transformed. And that's why Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah ultimately took the people a long way and did some fantastic stuff. But ultimately, at the end of it all, there is a sense of this is as far as we can go. We need more. And we don't have it. I better stop. I'm giving away all the spoilers.
Ezra finally shows up in chapter 7 and verse 6. First six chapters of the book, he probably wasn't even born. But he historically appears to be the one who compiled the first six chapters. And then he himself comes up from Babylon at the start of chapter 7. And he's buried in one of these horrendous lists of names. Now, Bible nerds, tune in for 30 seconds. If you're not a Bible nerd, you can tune out for 30 seconds. This one's for the nerds. You've got a list of names there. And Ezra's at the start of the list. And then you have seven priests. Then you have this dude in the middle called Azariah. Then you have another seven priests. And then at the very bottom, you've got Aaron, the brother of Moses, the original priest. So you've got this symmetry that, that, that lines up Ezra with Aaron. Ezra, what, what is this telling us? It's telling us that Ezra's a heavy hitter. He might have a small book, but he's a big dude. He's coming to God's people with a big job, equivalent to the job of Aaron. And also, because you've got right in the middle of the list, in yellow, you might not be able to read it, but there's a guy called Azariah. In Hebrew, his name is Ezra-Yah. Ezra-Yah. Ezra, obviously our guy is Ezra, a shortened version of that. Yah is a shortened version of Yahweh, Ezra-Yah. And this guy in the yellow, Azariah, Ezra-Yah, he was the priest in Solomon's temple. So you have got Aaron, the priest in the tabernacle. You've got Azariah, the priest in Solomon's temple. And now you've got Ezra, who's coming up to do this priestly work and bring the word of God and stand between God and the people in this new temple. You've got beautiful symmetry to it. Bible nerds love that. This rocks my world. I need to get out more. The rest, anyone else who just ignored that, you can come back online now. Ezra comes back up from Babylon. And what we read about him is, come on, screen. There we go. He was a teacher. (laughs) One of God's finest. (laughs) He was a teacher. Well-versed in chem... No, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Ezra is committed to Scripture. Now, whereas Zerubbabel came up, And he established worship. I'm going to help people to remember who they are by bringing them back to a place of worship. Ezra says, I'm going to help people to remember who they are by bringing them to the word of God. He was a teacher of the word. In verse 10, it says that he had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now, he's very skilled in handling God's word. Most people who are really good at something have worked really hard at it. Have you ever seen someone who is ridiculously talented and you have default, you have thought to yourself, they were just born able to do that? You know, I remember listening to some very technical guitarists when I was younger. Stefan would know them as well. And I remember watching these guys playing and thinking, my goodness, that is just sickening how good these, they don't even look. They don't even look. The entire song, they don't even look at their hands. And then you read a a guitar magazine interview, one of them, and you find out that they practice 10 to 12 hours a day. If somebody's really good at something, 
it's usually because they've worked at. Whenever we read about Ezra, we read this word, devoted. Ezra was really skilled at handling the word of God because Ezra was devoted to the word of God. He had set himself apart to study it. And it, there, there are three things in this verse that this devoted man, and this is, you know, I'm going to pick a couple of things out from later chapters, but this is largely where we're finishing. We're pitching our tent in this, in this verse for, for today, and then we're done. Ezra had devoted himself, first of all, to the study of God's word. You can only teach what you have studied. I can teach chemistry. I can teach a wee bit of maths. Kids in school will come and ask me about chemistry. Sometimes they will come and ask me, quite frequently they'll be doing a maths homework in the room beside mine and they come and ask me how to do their maths homework. They never ask me for help with French. <laughs> okay, <laughs> ever. Uh, they don't ask me for help with biology or history. You can only teach what you have learned, what you have studied. And Ezra has studied God's word. And I think there's a sense to which Ezra... It's not like God called him and said, Ezra, I want you to go and study my word because I have a job for you. Ezra was just a student of the word of God. That's what he did. He chose to be a student. And thereby he was prepared that whenever God needed someone to come up to Babylon and, and teach people the word, Ezra was ready to go. And I would say to, to, to this gathering, there are a lot of really intelligent people here. Now, you don't have to be an intellectual to study the Word of God. But there's a lot of you, and you should be studying God's Word. You should be studying it. Not, not just reading it, but, but diving in and studying it, because you're gifted. I remember sitting with two students in my room one day, maybe 10 years ago now, two really intelligent guys. One of them was planning to do law, maybe both of them law, or one medicine, one law, I can't remember. I remember just sitting with the two of them saying, why don't you give your intellectual gift over to God and to the study of God's Word? Why did you do that? And they both did. And hopefully they don't regret it. A lot of us, we should be students. We're, you know, we're still learners. As in, we're still, we're not studying for ourselves. But we've got the mind to be able to do it. A lot of you have studied at a high level at university or A-levels or, or whatever you've studied difficult subjects, really challenging subjects to a high level. So why don't we take those minds and those brains and dig in deeper to the Word of God and study it? When I started studying God's Word about 24 years ago, I had no intention of ever preaching it or teaching it. I just loved it. And I can remember sitting at night in my dad's study, rifling through books on his shelves and, and starting to dive into the Word of God. You just never know what he, what he might, you, if you devote yourself to that study, what he might then call you to when he needs you. So he studied the word. But that in itself is not enough. If you just study the word, then you can get all nerdy and you can like get lists of priests' names and put them in different colors and, and start to think that, uh, that that's really cool. Um, I sometimes nerd out on little Bible factoids like that, that you know, too much. The study of God's word alone is not enough. 
there has to be observance. That means you live it. You live it. He practiced what he studied. He lived out what he studied. Ezra knew the word of God so well that he was able to act out of the knowledge of it. Now, are you? Listen to me carefully because, do you know what? You see, if you don't study God's word, I don't mean you don't have to learn Hebrew, but if you don't you know, diligently apply yourself to God's word, what you'll find yourself is you will act in a way that is not governed by his word because you won't know any better. <laughs> Ezra had studied God's word and he had particularly studied a guy called Moses. And whenever Ezra comes from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, Ezra has a wristband on with WWMD on it. What would Moses do? And every decision that Ezra makes is based on what Moses did. How did he know what Moses did? He had studied it. And he was copying his mentor. He was copying his his role model, Moses. Ezra is not haphazard about going back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He doesn't just say, ah, you know, we'll go tomorrow or we'll go next week or whatever. No, no, he's very intentional. He goes, according to chapter 7, verse 9, he begins his journey on the first day of the first month. That's because that was the day that Moses left Egypt. Now, how did Ezra know that? Because he'd studied God's word. And it was important for him to act in a way that was mirroring what Moses had done. When Ezra went, he brought support from the royal treasury. I mentioned it earlier in Ezra chapter 7. Um, it's going to come up soon in verses 15 and 16. I'm not going to read it all, but basically the king gives Ezra financial support from the royal treasury. Well, that's exactly what Moses did. When Moses left Egypt... All the people, all the Egyptians were giving their gold and their silver to the Israelites and saying to them, get out of here, <laughs> take our money and go, just leave us alone. And the same thing happens, slightly different, but the, a similar outcome whenever Ezra leaves Babylon, all the people are giving them money. That's what happened to Moses. The same stuff's happened to Ezra. He appoints judges in verse 25 of chapter 7. He appoints magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people. That's what Moses did. In Exodus 18. How did Ezra know that? He studied it. How does this Egypt at the front know that there's 60 years between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7? Because the Bible doesn't tell you. You study it. It is important in understanding what's going on. I remember a guy coming here. only came once. Thank you, Jesus. But he came and he said to me, I don't read any books other than the Bible. That's all I read. I don't read any other books. Just read the Bible. Well, I think that's silly. I think it's really silly. I think it's really ignorant to not, to not be trying to read and, 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 and bring in as much as you can to help you understand God's word. You're never going to figure out that there's 60 years between Ezra 6 and 7 unless somebody tells you or you read it in a book. There's a funny thing that happens in, in Ezra chapter 8. As they've left in Ezra 8, 15, suddenly Ezra realizes that they've forgotten something. There it is. Yes. When I checked among the people, Ezra 8, 15, and the priests, I found no Levites there. So they forgot to bring the Levites. The Levites are not snacks. Levites are a group of people 
who had to help out in the temple, who had to carry the ark, who had to, you know, they had all these official roles. And Ezra, in in verse 15 of chapter 8, suddenly freaks out as they're on the journey and says, hang on, there's no Levites here. We need to go find some. And he goes and he finds some Levites. Why was that important? It was important because he wanted to copy Moses. Why Why did he know what Moses did? Because he'd studied it and he wanted to live it out. Does God's word affect your choices? Now listen, are you making decisions in life independent from a life of study and of reading the word of God. And some of you you might have to make a decision tomorrow and you might not have time to go and study the whole Bible, but you might want to go and talk to an older Christian and say, here, what do you think? Does God's word shed any light on this thing that I'm thinking about? Another thing that he does whenever the people sin, what happens in Ezra 9 and 10 is is that he finds out loads of the men, loads of the leaders have married foreign women, which God told them not to do. And it's just a total nightmare. And he has to try and figure out what to do. And he's he's appalled in Ezra 9, 3 and 4. He's appalled at what they've done. And in verse 5, he goes and he brings it to God. That's exactly what Moses did the golden calf back in Exodus 32. The people have sinned by making a golden calf and and Moses stands between the people and God and pleads with God on behalf of the people. Ezra does the same thing. How did he know how to do it? He'd read Moses. He had learned from Moses. He had studied it. So he copied Moses. Who do we copy? According to 1 John 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There's who you copy. Copy Jesus. What things can you copy that Jesus did? Well, one of the things that the Holy Spirit's just all over me about at the minute is is copying Jesus' simple practice of withdrawing by himself to pray for a, a prolonged period of time, not just for 10 minutes, but to go to a desert place, a solitary place, a forest, a lake, a river, a mountain, an empty church, to go and to be alone and to pray. Copy that and see what happens. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Imitate, but you can't imitate if you haven't studied. Study Jesus, study Paul, copy them. See how life goes. He, Ezra not only studied the word, but he also observed the word. He also lived it. And then finally, thirdly, he also taught it. He taught it. Earlier I asked, where are the prophets? And I also want to ask, where are the teachers? It's an interesting experience being in an exam hall when a bunch of kids are doing an RE exam and you're walking around looking over their shoulders at what they're writing. (laughs) And there are some, some great moments. You know, what river was Jesus baptized in? The Nile. (laughs) according to the average teenager um, in a certain school. Kids don't know the Word of God. A generation ago, a lot of kids did know it because just whatever youth groups they went to or maybe they were packed off to Sunday school or whatever, but they knew the basics of the Word of God. Kids now don't. There's a need for teachers. There's a need for people to know the Word of God and communicate it to them. And Ezra is not only studying and he's not only living out the word of God, but he's looking for an opportunity to teach it. And again, I would say, I think there's a lot of people in this church who are well capable of teaching the word of God. Well capable. Some people want to 
you know, the, the order's important. He studied it, he lived it out, and he taught it. Some people want to study it and teach it, but they're not living it out. The character's not there. A life lived on the basis of the Word of God. And they want to teach it. They have studied it, but they're not living it. Some people want to teach it without studying it at all. <laughs> Just say the first thing comes into their heads and it's a bit chaotic. You study it, you live it, you teach it. Ezra had a secret weapon. And with this I finish. This is a wonderful phrase that appears in the, the last sac- section of, of Ezra from chapter 7 to 10. The good hand of his God was on him. We read earlier that the eye of the Lord was on the people. Now the hand of God was on him. Others have claimed that the hand of God is upon them in the past, including that gentleman there, Diego, if you don't know. Uh, The good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. Now that just does not just mean comfort. One of the things that you've missed over the past few years is not dudes putting their hand up and down your back <laughs> in church, but maybe someone just putting, putting a hand on your shoulder. Like we've sort of lost human contact a wee bit when someone just reassures you by putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, you know, you're, you're all right. But this is more than that. When, when, when the good hand of the Lord is upon people, God's hand is his strength, right? It's how creation happened. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. His hand was active in creation. It's how redemption happened. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, God says to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians. So God's hand is active in creation and his hand is active in redemption. And in Ezra, we read it over and over again. God's hand brings him favor in chapter 7, verse 6. The king granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. When God's hand's upon us, it brings us favor with people. God's hand brought him courage, verse 28 of chapter 7, because of the hand of the Lord my God on me, I took courage. His hand strengthens us. In 831, his hand is protection. The hand of our God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. The hand of God. Do you think God's hand is on Tim Keller and Rick Warren and all the famous Christians this morning. Nicky Gumbel, Pete Craig, but not you. His hand is on you. It's a good hand. It's a strengthening hand. And I did a thing, you know, on the, on the search last night. I just looked up hand in the New Testament. <clears throat> and I and only put up one verse because there were so many. Jesus, amazing how many times he reaches out his hand. He touches people, the good hand of the Lord upon people, transforming them, healing them. And Satan hits those hands. So he, you know, how how will we stop these hands from reaching out and touching people and bringing God's power and presence to them and blessing them? Let's nail them to a bit of wood. They'll not move then. But on resurrection night, Jesus comes and he stands among the disciples and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. And then the first thing he does is shows him his hands. Not nailed down anymore. Not restricted from being able to work the works of God anymore. 
And when John is on the beach in Revelation 1 and he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead, what he feels on his shoulder is Jesus' right hand. It's not just a there, there now, John, it'll be okay. It's power to get up and to be about the work of God. And Ezra says, the good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. That's all of us. (laughs) All of us. He doesn't put his hand lightly on one and more heavily on another. His good hand is upon all who look to him. His eye is on you. His hand is on you. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Ezra, the teacher. Thank you, God, for what we learn from him. Father, will you bring us into your word deeper, Lord? A lot of us should be students. Would you encourage today and would you call people not out of guilt or out of a sense of missed opportunity, but out of a sense of desire and hunger? Would you raise up students in your word, Lord? Would you help all of us to live it out? And Father, would you anoint people to be teachers? So much skill in this room, so much intelligence, so much brain power. Lord, may it be sanctified for your use so that people would teach the word of God to others. I thank you that your eye is on us, Lord. And I thank you that your good hand is upon us, King Jesus. Empowering us, strengthening us, giving us favor, giving us courage. Father, may we learn from what we've studied. May we rise up and build. May we be inspired that you are with us. That your eye and your hand is not upon the big churches in America more than it's on the wee church in Tandragee. Thank you, Jesus.